Well, I do want to express my welcome to you. We're really glad that you're here. And uh, I do want to reiterate what uh, was said on the screens. Uh, we would love to know how we can pray for you. And so please let us know. Our staff meets uh, every day for prayer, and we'd love to know how we can pray for you. I want to pray as we, uh, as we get into the message. And uh, we are a church that loves the nations. And you may have heard this morning that there was a significant uh, terrorist attack in Sri Lanka. And so I just want to begin. We're, we're full of joy here this morning, and they were as well. I just want to lift them up, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ in Sri Lanka. Father God, we want to say thank you that you are a God who is with us in the context of pain and suffering. And we're praying, Lord, for our brothers and sisters in Christ in Sri Lanka who have endured much hardship and tragedy in the last eight hours. We ask, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would give comfort to those who are suffering and power to those who are serving those who are suffering. We love you, Lord, and thank you for your sovereign grace over us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I invite you to turn to John chapter 20. And this morning, we're going to talk about what it means to, uh, to seek after Jesus. So some people will go to any length to search for somebody else. I want to take you back to uh, an example of that, back to uh, the small village of Birkenau, Poland, which is out in the middle of nowhere, except for the fact that it was the place where Auschwitz was. Auschwitz, the death camp. In the 1940s, Auschwitz morphed from a lone building into a complex of over 40 buildings, and it became the final destination for over a million people, mostly Jews. In 1945, there was a young boy named Menachem Bodner who was taken to Auschwitz. He was four, and he was taken there with his twin brother, two brothers who held each other at night in the barracks, who slept in the same bed, who cried each other to sleep at night. Two brothers suffering together in Auschwitz. Then they were separated. And for the past 79 years, Menachem Bodner has not known where his brother is. He had this idea that he's probably alive and that some of his family members were alive, but didn't know where they were. Well, after the war, uh, he was adopted and given the name of his adopted parents. And he kept thinking, I've, I've got to search for my family. All he knew was the tattoo on his arm was 7733, and his brother's was 7734. So he, uh, he contacted a genealogist named Ayana Kimron, and she did some digging, went through some of the, uh, some of the archives. And uh, she discovered that there were pictures of his parents. He was blown away by these pictures. He, he, these memories came flooding back of mom and dad, whom he hadn't seen since he was four. Then came the big breakthrough. The genealogist sent Menachem's DNA to 23andMe. How many of you have done that, 23andMe? A lot of people I know have done that. And it came back that there was a match. It was a definite match. And Menachem Bogner uh, uh, was um, able to reunite with a first cousin and other families as well. And their first, their first time together was a time of just profound healing for him. Now, we never found his, 
his actual brother, but he was reunited with a lot of members of his family. But here's a guy who was a persistent seeker. And there are people who go to great lengths to seek. We human beings are seekers by nature. We seek all sorts of things. We seek meaning, purpose, value. But there's one thing we seek more than anything else, and that is we seek a person. We ultimately seek as the object of our search God and more properly Jesus Christ. And the great St. Augustine said this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. What we find in the resurrection story is we find the search of the quintessential seeker whose name is Mary. We know her as Mary Magdalene. And I tell you her story this morning as an example of what all of us can do to seek after the one person who will ultimately satisfy, and that is, that is Jesus Christ. So the story uh, is in the Gospel of John, and John has a very specific agenda in his story. John wants to zero in on Mary Magdalene. She's the one that he wants us to know about as an example of what it means to search. So we begin with her presence at the empty tomb. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, like She came just before the sun was rising. In that time between darkness and dawn, that's when she came. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. By the way, she went a a very long way, as we'll see. Uh, And she said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We We don't know where they've laid him. Now you ask the question, who is this Mary Magdalene? I mean, she, her name appears first in all the resurrection accounts. In fact, whenever there is a list of female followers, Mary's name is always first, Mary Magdalene. Who is she? Well, we get a, a glimpse of this in Luke 8, 1 through 3. Jesus went through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, you know, get this, from whom seven demons had gone out. So think about it. We have, we have the 12 disciples. They're the official 12. Then we have a group of female followers who were, according to the, this account, in a way they were functioning as parallel followers with the men, and they were following Jesus around. It's the only example we have of this in the New Testament, but it's a very powerful example of Jesus' discipleship ministry. So let me take you way back to Mary's Mary's background. The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level, and because it's in a semi-tropical climate, it's great for farming and fishing. And there are a number of, uh, of different harbors around the Sea of Galilee, and Magdala is one of those harbors. It was known as teriyaki because it was the place of the salting of fish. It was on a major north-south highway, and you can go to Magdala today and find salting ponds. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he's probably thinking about Magdala because that's where they salted the fish and took them all over the Roman, the Roman Empire. Jesus... Um, you know, I 
when you think fish, you think Magdala. So Jesus is probably referring to Magdala uh, when he uses that term in the Sermon on the Mount. Because this was a thriving place, there was a thriving synagogue. And archaeologists have uncovered a podium, a first century podium. And that first century podium dates from the time of Jesus. We know Jesus preached at the synagogue in Magdala, and it is a good possibility that he unfurled the scroll on that stone when he preached in Magdala. So, visiting rabbis often came to preach, and uh, one day Jesus came to Magdala, and there's Mary. And uh, I'm going to speculate a little bit here, but, you know, Mary was the talk of the town. Mary was the talk of the town. I mean, when people saw Mary, they shook their heads and the, oh, poor girl, poor girl. Something, something's, something's not right with her. Maybe it was a terrible physical illness. Maybe it was a spiritual thing. Luke mentioned seven demons. And it's not like somebody counted seven flying out when Jesus cast out the demons. What he's using the word seven for is an example of she was in a really, really bad way. I mean, this was the worst form of demon possession that you can have. And so, uh, so Mary was the talk of the town, and then Jesus shows up, and Jesus shows up in the synagogue, and, and Mary hears Jesus, and Mary comes to Jesus. You know, men and women were separated at the synagogue, and so Mary, I think, probably takes this risk of, I'm going to go see him. <laughs> And she approaches Jesus, and Jesus looks at her with compassion and love, and Jesus heals her right then and there in the synagogue. And now Mary, who was Mary the mess, becomes Mary the passionate follower of Jesus. Wherever Jesus is, she shows up. Wherever Jesus walks, she walks. She wants to be with Jesus no matter where he is, and she hangs on every word. And one day, Jesus says, well, Mary, would you like to be one of my followers? We've got a group of, of women who are following me. Would you like to be one of my, one of my followers? Do, do you want to do that? And she grasped at the opportunity and became a full-time follower. And according to Luke 8, 1 through 3, we have some pretty amazing women in that list. Like we have the, the wife of the household manager of Herod Antipas. She is a very high-class, wealthy, powerful woman in the Middle East. And yet, Mary Magdalene's name appears in front of Joanna's name. Why, why is that? Why is that? Because Mary became a passionate seeker after the person of Christ. So with that background, let's go to Good Friday. And you'll remember that Jesus dies on the cross from 9 a.m. in the morning to 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And around noon, a, an inky black darkness covers Jerusalem. It was not just like an eclipse or a terrible set of clouds. It was like an inky black spiritual supernatural darkness. Everybody at the foot of the cross connected it, connected it with the person who was, who was dying. And then there were rumors of other events going on as well. There were, like, there were these rumors that the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the city starts going into some, into some chaos. And there was this other crazy rumor that, 
that in the earthquake that had taken place, that some of the tombs were open and some of the people in the tombs had walked out of the tombs and were walking around, around the city. And the city was in absolute chaos. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take the body of Jesus off of the cross, take it to the tomb, and guess who's there watching as they're doing this? Mary Magdalene. Mary from Magdala. Mary, the one who had been a mess, and yet Jesus healed her. She was there watching. And an idea formed in Mary's mind. You know, this burial is being done in such haste. Um, why, why don't we, the women around, why don't, why don't we come back first thing Sunday morning? After the Sabbath, let's come back first thing Sunday morning. Let's, let's properly bury the body of Jesus. Mary had very little time to pull this off. It's not quite sunset. She, she rushes back into the city. She buys the spices, buys the shroud, and gets ready for Sunday morning. And so that takes us to John 20, verses 1 and 2. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. By predetermined arrangement, the women gather, still dark, they gather in the city, they walk out of the city, they walk to the empty tomb. It was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of, Jesus, uh, the mother of James, Salome, and others. They come with a fine linen, they come with the spices. Mary walks fast, she walks faster, she begins to run. Now she's running far ahead of the west of the women. Now she rounds the bend, she sees the tomb, she sees the stone rolled away from the tomb and she makes an about face, hikes up her robe, runs back into the city. The women who are coming with her see her running back into the city. They're amazed. He runs back into the city to Peter's Airbnb, the one that he had rented for Passover. She knocks on the door. Peter answers, and then there's John behind him. Their hair is all tousled. They've been, maybe they hadn't gotten a lot of sleep, you know. M maybe they were just woken up, just surprised that somebody was knocking on the door. She says, they've, they've taken the, the body. They, they've, they roll their eyes in contempt. What do you mean they've taken the body? I mean, we, we've got like, the Romans have got like the Navy seals of Rome guarding the body. Nobody can take the body. She, she insists the, the body's been taken. I don't know where they've, they've taken him. And so, so they begin to run. Peter, James, Mary. They're running through the city, outside the city walls, out toward where the tomb is. They round the bend, and sure enough, sure enough, the tomb is open. <laughs> And Peter and John look in, and they're amazed that the burial cloths are lying all askew, but the head cloth is all folded up, rolled up nice, nice and neatly. They can't figure out what happened. Remember, that's what it says in verse, verse 9. There's the empty tomb. In verse 9, they did not yet understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. I find that kind of incredible in a way because Jesus had predicted that he would rise from the dead. How many times? Many times in the gospels he predicted this, but they just didn't comprehend what was going on. So 
James and Peter leave. And now it's just Mary. And Mary is not going to leave that tomb. She's the seeker. She lingers by the empty tomb. She's crying. Through her tears, she's processing and seeking. She wants to understand. She approaches the entrance of the tomb. She peers inside. And to her astonishment, there are two angels inside. Two angels. One where his head would have been and one where his his feet would have been. Two angels. And they speak. And the angels say, woman, why are you weeping? They know exactly why she's weeping. They want her to express it. Because seekers always express the things they are seeking. Seekers have this wonderful quality where they, they talk about what they are seeking. They're passionate about their search. So they talk about it. And the angels are lovingly giving Mary the opportunity to express why she's seeking. Notice that she's still thinking about Jesus as Lord. They've taken away my Lord. Notice the possessive, my Lord. And I don't know where they've laid him. And so, Jesus shows up behind her. And Jesus asks the same question and an additional one. Jesus says, woman, why are you weeping? Now notice, she's in the tomb looking at the two angels. She hears a rustling behind her. She turns around, sees a man. She thinks it's the gardener. And Jesus speaks. Why are you weeping? A loving way for her to express what she's seeking after. But then Jesus says, whom are you seeking? And in John's part of the story, look, this story occurs in all four Gospels, but in John's version of the Gospel, this is the most important phrase. This is the phrase that we focus in on. This is the phrase that John wants us to rivet our eyes to. He asks, whom are you seeking. Well, supposing to the gardener, she says, sir, if you've carried him away, (laughs) like she's really taking responsibility here. If you've taken him away, uh, tell me where you've laid him and, and, and I will take him away. And Jesus recognizes that she's expressed her search. You know, she's still seeking Jesus. She's still seeking to serve him, even though it's just his body. And Jesus, in love, speaks to her, Mary. When you you read this, you have to read, Mary. It's It's a word of love and compassion and discovery. And then she says, she recognizes him. She says, Rabboni. Rabbi means my great teacher. The O-U-N-I suffix doesn't exactly mean this, but when it's with rabbi, it means my greatest of all teachers, my teacher, my teacher whom I love, my teacher who is my, my mentor, my, my guide. So look at the pattern. Mary seeks, Mary finds, Mary worships. What does Mary do immediately? She bows at the feet of Jesus, hugging Jesus' feet. What would she have seen when she hugs his feet? The imprints of the nails. Now she's She was sure it was Jesus, but now she's doubly sure. She has physical evidence seeing the nail print in his his feet. Jesus says something that's kind kind of strange to us. He says, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brothers. He says that because 
he's going to be around for 40 more days. There's going to be time for worship during that 40-day time period. But there's some specific work that needs to be done now. And that work is that Mary gets to be the first one to announce the resurrection. Uh, wow, that's kind of amazing. And to, do, to, to command this, he says, I am ascending, Jesus says, to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. That's the message. She hikes up her road, robes. She sprints back into town, back to Peter's Airbnb in Jerusalem. And here's her core message. I've seen Jesus. And Jesus has invited us into the circle of the triune God. Now, why do I say it's the circle of the triune God? Remember what he says, my father and your father, my God and your God. Jesus is inviting Mary and the disciples and all who would become disciples into the circle, into the eternal love of the triune God of the universe where we can, we can rest. And I want you to think about the details of this message. This is a message that Mary gives about personal experience. I have seen the Lord. It's a message about Trinitarian relationships, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's a message about family. You know, we, we now have a family, a spiritual family. It's a message founded on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this is what seekers are, are longing for. They're longing for experience with God, relationships with the triune God, family, and it's the cross. And Mary, the quintessential seeker, gets all of that, and the privilege of being the first to announce the resurrection. So that leads us to the heart of the story. And the heart of the story really is Jesus' question in John 19, 15. Who are you seeking? Who are you seeking? And I could ask the same question of you this morning. Who are you seeking? What are you seeking? What are you seeking today? Like, what, what keeps you awake at night? What grabs you with passion in your search. You know, Jesus could have revealed himself to any number of people. He could have appeared first to Peter. Peter was the lead disciple. He's the one who said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He could have appeared first to Peter. That'd be kind of cool. He could have appeared first to James and John. They wanted to be first. Remember that? Their, their mom came to Jesus and said, hey, we want our son. I want my sons to be like on your left and right in the kingdom. I want them to be first. As if First was something that could be doled out. First come, first serve. You ask first, you get first. He could have appeared first to James and John. He could have appeared first to Pilate. And he could have said, guess what, loser? You mess with the wrong guy, and you're in big trouble. Jesus didn't reveal himself to any of them. He revealed himself to Mary the mess. Mary from Magdala. Mary Magdalene the one with such a terrible past. I find that flat out amazing. It's amazing because the first century world was a man's world. It's a man's world. Women were definitely second-class citizens according to the way the rabbis taught the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Men first, women definitely second. And if Jesus wanted to appear first to a man to give his message credibility, he could have done that. He appears first to the one who sought most, and that is Mary Magdalene. And so we see the main idea is, is this. Jesus loves to reveal himself to the hungry, 
He delights in making himself known to those who want to encounter him. He doesn't force himself on us. He's a gentleman in that sense. He doesn't force himself on you. You will follow me. doesn't do that. He, he, he delights in making himself known to those who desire to follow. We see a, a thread of this in many other places in the Bible. Uh, for instance, Deuteronomy 4.29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if, here's the big if, if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. Here's the thing about the heart in the Bible. The heart in the Bible is the place where you make choices. The, your heart is your chooser. Your heart is your chooser. Your heart is the, is the executive center of your life. It's where you say, I will do this. I will do that. And what Moses is saying here, or God through Moses, is, is this. If you, in your heart, make the choice, I am passionately going to pursue Jesus, you'll find him. You'll find him. Here's another verse, Proverbs 8, 17. I love those who love me. And those who seek me will diligently find me. Now listen, God loves everybody. But this is a statement, a proverbial statement about God having a special connection with those who love him. And what does it mean to love God? It means to diligently seek him. And the promise is you will find him. Deuteronomy 4.29, Proverbs 8.17, all come back to the same idea. If you seek, you will find. Or here's another one, Jeremiah 29.13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I love that about God. You know, God is not a resentful, angry God who says, I'm not going to be found by you. You've been an idiot your whole life. Are you kidding me? I am not going to let you find me. Not after what you've done to me. No way. That didn't happen. I will be found by you, says the Lord. It's a statement of God's great love. New Testament. This is Paul in Athens. You know, Paul is now talking to philosophers. And he says, God made from every man one nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. And here's the purpose. Why does God set up government around the, around the world? so that people should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. It's like they're blind. You know, they're seeking after God. I think I can find him. <laughs> I'm going to search after him. And then Paul says, but he's not far from us. Not far from each of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. God is a findable God. God is a God who loves to be searched after. Now, those of you who are biblically literate know that Paul says in Romans chapter 3, none seek after God, not even one. And that's true. In our own humanity, we will not naturally seek after God. But God, in his grace, prompts us to seek after him. And everybody on the face of the earth, at some level, has sought after more of God. And so here's, here's Mary who is seeking and finding. I'll tell you, there's some Christians who don't, don't, do not get what I've just said. They come to Christ in high school or college or young adult. They get into their adult years. They say, 
um, I'm good. I'm good. I did seek God at one point in time, but I'm good. I've, I've got heaven. I've got eternal life. I'm good. I'm not going to be that passionate about searching after God. I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm kind of, it's okay for me to be just kind of static in my connection with God. That's not authentic Christianity. Authentic Christianity is you seeking after God as a non-believer and finding Him. It's you seeking more of God as a believer and finding Him. It's you seeking more of God in your marriage and finding Him. It's you seeking more of God in your parenting and finding Him. It's you seeking more of God in your career and finding Him. It's you seeking more of God in your retirement and finding Him. It's you seeking more of God. It's a lifestyle of being a continual seeker. And that's the reason why Jesus said this, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. What do we seek first? We seek the kingdom presence of the ever-present God all the time. Let me ask you a question. Are you so skilled at living in Jesus' presence? You can say, I, I don't need to do that anymore. I'm so good at it. So good at it. I don't need to seek anymore. I'm there. I've arrived. I don't think anybody, any of us are there. And that's why we need to be continual seekers. So with that, let's look at some takeaways for Easter Sunday morning. First takeaway is this. Embrace the pain that brought you to Christ. Mary came to Christ out of her pain. She was afflicted in body and mind. Her demon possession was so bad that Luke says it is as if seven demons came out of her. It was the worst of the worst. It was the worst maybe that Luke had ever seen. He was a doctor. Man, it was seven demons had gone out of her. It was so bad. It was the worst he'd ever seen. So Mary the mess was Mary, Mary the broken, Mary the crushed, until Jesus comes along. And Mary takes her pain and she presents it to Jesus. Jesus heals her and transforms her. Jesus becomes the center of her world. Now Mary hungers for his presence. Mary hungers for his word. Mary waits in his presence even when she doesn't know what's going to happen at the resurrection. So that's what seekers do. They're in touch with their pain, and they allow the pain of their life to draw them further into Christ. I'm sure everybody in this room at some level came to Christ out of your, out of your pain. You had a lot of pain. You took that pain. You presented that pain to Jesus. Jesus healed you. And your first days in Christ were days of joy because of the healing of your pain. That's a great thing when that happens. For you to continue to seek after Christ, don't lose the memory of that pain that brought you to Christ. And I, again, I find there's a good number of, of Christians who, who definitely do this. They say, yeah, I, you know, it was tough when I came to Christ. God healed me. It was awesome. But, you know, it wasn't that bad. You know, what, 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 I mean, I was, it's pretty good, you know. It wasn't, wasn't so bad. And when we lose the pain that brought us to Christ or made us grow in Christ or made us mature in Christ, when we lose the sight of that pain, we lose the passion, we lose the passion to seek. So I, I encourage you, remember your past brokenness as, as a gift because that memory is the context in which God saved you. If you ever... If you ever bought a diamond ring for your spouse or wanted a diamond ring and bought it for yourself, you know that when they take a diamond ring, you put it against a 
black velvet background so that the clarity of that ring shows up. And your brokenness is that black background so that the clarity of who you are in Christ can show up. And I will tell you, we want to be the kind of church that is so safe that if you express that brokenness, we cheer you on because we all, we all, we've all been there and we can be an agent of your healing. Here's the second takeaway. Second takeaway is to cultivate a taste for the continual presence of God. Here's what I love about the picture of the two angels. There was an angel at Jesus' foot, an angel at Jesus' head on the, the ledge in the tomb. Now, there's great symbolism there because it draws us back to the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. In the temple, at the apex of the temple, in the Holy of Holies, was the Ark of the Covenant, and on top of the Ark of the Covenant was a lid. That lid was called the mercy seat. On top of the mercy seat were two angels, one at one end, one at the other end, and they were bowing toward each other, but not to each other, because what happened with these two angels is that there was a cloud of glory, the Shekinah glory, that dwelt between the two angels on the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. And what's happening in the empty tomb is similar. The, these, these angels are at the head and the foot where Jesus' body was. And it's as if God is declaring the mercy seat is Jesus. He's the mercy seat. In fact, Paul declares that in Romans 3, 21 through 23. Jesus is the mercy seat. But the fact that these two angels are seated at the end of the bench suggests that the infinite presence of the resurrected Jesus is all around them. It's all around them. And sure enough, Mary's there. She hears the rustling in the background. Boob, there he is. There's Jesus. And so the resurrection story is an invitation to remember the continual presence of the risen Jesus with us. You ever visualize that he's, he's right like next to you? You know, there's, there's physical space between you and the person next to you. You ever, ever visualize that the presence of the resurrected Jesus is there? When you drive in your car, do you ever visualize the resurrected presence of the Jesus there? I got stopped by a police officer this week for speeding. Sydney, Sydney doesn't know that. Uh, that, that she's, she's first hearing about that. And, you know, there, there are some times where I, I, will, I will envision the resurrected Christ with me in the car. Not that morning. <laughs> this is an, the resurrection is an invitation to remember the real spiritual presence in the spiritual spaces around you and to dwell in that presence. And I urge you to cultivate a taste for that. Cultivate a taste for it. You know, the taste industry is a billion-dollar industry these days. So the taste industry, you, you, there are people with PhDs in chemistry who are working for Frito-Lay and who are working for other companies, and they're concocting various spices to make you addicted to their chips, right? And they're cultivating tastes in you. That's happened for centuries. Here's an example. This is haggis. Haggis is oatmeal stuffed in a lamb's stomach. 
I don't think any of you are going to have that for your Easter Sunday meal, are you? No, nobody, anybody planning on having haggis? Okay, one, one, one person having haggis. Okay. Haggis is a cultivated taste. You, McIlvain, my name, you know, is like Scottish. It's a cultivated taste. This is head cheese that people have in Germany. Mm, that's a cultivated taste. It's cultivated taste. You can cultivate a taste for the presence of Jesus. Do that. This Easter Sunday, let, let that be something that you plan on doing. And then a third takeaway is this. Begin your seeking process with gratitude. So, you know, when, when Mary shout, shouts out, Rabboni, you know, she, she doesn't shout out, go like this, hmm, Rabboni, <laughs> whatever, you're here. She didn't do that. Her, her Rabboni is an expression of joy and gratitude in the presence of the resurrected Christ. So part of what we think about on Easter Sunday morning is being grateful and joyful at the same time. Being grateful and joyful at the same time. You know, I often say at Grace Community Church that gratitude is something that impacts us neurologically, biochemically. But, th- but think about this, this scripture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. He's not just praiseworthy and gratitude-worthy. He's praiseworthy and gratitude-worthy over many generations. He's enduringly so. And so I, I encourage you to confront the grumpiness. Did you hear me say that? the grumpiness that's really easy to slip into. Ah, They've not done enough for me. I do all the work around here. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares for me. Nobody's thanking me the way they should. It's all entitlement. Don't do that. Cultivate gratitude. Cultivate gratitude. So here's Mary, the one who shows up at the empty tomb. She seeks. She finds She worships, she speaks, and she says, he's risen, he's risen.